question I'd like to consider this evening is how we can be happy in our lives, how we can manifest our intention for loving-kindness, for compassion, for goodwill in our relationships, in our work situations, in our lives in the world. How can we connect our meditation practice with our lives? The whole spiritual journey rests on the foundation, rests on the morality of non-harming. It's really impossible to separate meditative wisdom, meditative insight from ethical and moral behavior. Sort of an image that came to mind as I was thinking about this. Do you remember the, the myth of Icarus, you know, who flew in the sky with wings of wax or held together by wax, and as he flew too close to the sun, the wax melted and he came crashing to the ground? We can have the deepest kind of meditative insights or understanding, and if it's not built on a foundation of morality. It comes crashing, and we've seen that happen again and again. There's one verse of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of the Buddha's teachings, which sums up all 45 years of his teachings in one verse. And it's very direct. It's very straightforward. He's telling us what to do. He says, refrain from unwholesome actions. Perform wholesome ones. Purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And that last line is interesting because it points to the timelessness of the Dhamma. You know, in the Buddhist cosmology, there have been countless Buddhas before Siddhartha Gautama, and there'll be countless ones in the future. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Refrain from what's unskillful, do what is skillful, purify the mind. It's said that what most moved the Buddha after his enlightenment was looking around, surveying the world with his eye of wisdom, and seeing that people were seeking happiness in their lives, yet continuing to do the very things which brought about suffering. You know, and we can see that in our own lives. We all want happiness, and yet how often do we keep doing the things which lead to suffering? So as a further help, the Buddha elaborated on that verse, And he laid out very explicitly what are the actions which are unskillful? What are the actions that we should refrain from doing? So that's what I want to talk about tonight. What shouldn't we do if we want to be happy? He talked about ten unwholesome actions, three of body, four of speech, and three of mind. And although most of these will be familiar to you, I think it's helpful to hear them again and again and water the seeds of this understanding so that in times of action, we might actually remember And take a moment and, oh, this is one of those unskillful actions. Maybe I should reconsider. It helps awaken us from the sleep of our habituated uh, actions and reactions. So what's the first? The first unwholesome action of the body. Not killing. Not harming others physically. Just think what the world would be like if people just followed this, this one basic moral restraint. People not killing people. 
but the world would be a completely different place. And yet we see how much violence there is, how much killing there is. It refers to not killing animals, and certainly not for sport or for pleasure. Not killing things because we don't like them, because they're ugly. You know, in my India days, I was renting a house up in the mountains in Dalhousie, in the hill station. It was just a kind of, kind of primitive cottage. And there were big spiders on the ceiling, big hairy spiders. <laughs> you know, kind of like that. So I'm there in my room, sleeping or sitting, <laughs> you know, looking at these spiders. But I was committed, you know, to this precept of not harming, not killing. And so I had to overcome a kind of inner... It was an extreme revulsion, <laughs> but it was minor revulsion. You know, and, okay, they're there, they're on the ceiling, that's their space. I'm down here, this is my space. <laughs> it's okay, we can share this. It's possible, just because we don't like how something looks doesn't mean we have to kill it. You know, but in our culture, uh, you know, something's in the house, take out the can of rage, you know, gone. So can we, have a, can we have a respect and an appreciation for the life force that, you know, is in us all and that every living being wants to continue living, wants to go on living? There's a wonderful book, it came out many, many years ago, maybe some of you are familiar with it, it's called Kinship with All Life. It's, it's really a wonderful book because it tells of this very unusual person who had a kind of telepathic ability to communicate, you know, mind to mind with all kinds of animals. Even animals you would think would be impossible. And he tells the story of communicating with flies. <laughs> And it was, it was quite inspiring reading because it just reminded me and can remind us of the fact that the life force is the same. The form is different and the expression is different. So can we respect it and refrain from killing? Of course, sometimes as people living in the world, as lay people, we're presented with some genuine ethical problems. You know, what do we do with the mosquitoes that are carrying malaria? You know, what are the choices we make? What do we do if, you know, carpenter ants are chomping up your house? You know, what's the choice? That's one of the reasons the Buddha recommended the monk's life, the monastic life, because it, in a way it removes one from having to make these choices. But here we are. And so I think the remembrance of killing as being an unskillful act in times of these ethical dilemmas, it can make us stop for a moment and just, okay, are there alternatives? You know, is there something else I can do? And if it does feel necessary for some larger good, can we do it without aversion, without ill will, without disgust, you know, and really with as much compassion as possible? It doesn't make the action skillful, but it surrounds the unskillful action, which we feel is necessary, with a skillful motivation. Okay, so the second of the unwholesome actions of body, the first is not killing, is not stealing, not taking things that aren't offered, not being dishonest in work. You know, especially in these last years when you just read about these corporate scandals where thousands, tens of thousands of people are affected so much. You know, when you read of people's life savings and retirement, you know, being wiped out because of the greed, you know, of certain people, because of stealing. This is hugely impactful. And so how are we in our own work situation? 
You know, it's just to may not be on that level, but can we take a tremendous amount of care? Sometimes we steal by inaction. Years ago, when I was first, I was leaving the Peace Corps in Thailand, and on my way back I stopped in Nepal, and I did this day hike up to a place called Nagarkot, which uh, is a place where you can view Mount Everest. You know, it's, it's a day's walk from Kathmandu. And at that time, there was only a primitive shelter on top, you know, where people could stay, kind of like a very primitive cabin. Uh, so I got up there, and it was you know, close to evening time. And there was a room, I don't know, with maybe seven or eight beds. And when the sun went down, it, people basically went to sleep. You know, it, was, it got quite cold there. And all of the beds had two rather thin blankets. So I went to my cot, and I realized there were three blankets on it. So I thought, oh, good. Because it was cold. And even with the three blankets, it was cold. And then later that night, one kind of uh, traveler came in, who I guess who had started late in the trek, came in and went to his cot. And there was only one blanket on his cot. So the caretaker kind of came in and, you know, said, you know, does anybody have the extra blanket? And I'm lying there, it's kind of cold. <laughs> and the rationale in my mind was, well, I, I didn't ask for it. <laughs> you know, it was just here. And I didn't say anything. You know, years later, I'm meditating, and this incident comes back in my mind. And I felt really ashamed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a kind of stealing and, and really harming you know, somebody else uh, from inaction from not doing something that, that really was appropriate, and how long you know, the effect of that lasted in my mind. Uh, so there's a, there's a great refinement to all of these understandings in terms of refraining from unskillful actions. Not killing, not stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, or sexual misconduct being the third of the unwholesome actions. Now, what does this mean? Sexual misconduct means different things at different levels. If one is a monk, or a nun, or a yogi on retreat, it means refraining from any sexual activity. If one is a lay person in the world, it means refraining <coughs> from sexual activity that causes harm, either to oneself or others. And usually this refers to adultery, you know, relationships that involve dishonesty, some kind of exploitation, you know, where there's a power differenti- differential and there's, there's a kind of sexual exploitation. So this is all sexual misconduct. It's very important to investigate this carefully in our lives because, as we all know, sexual energy is tremendously powerful. You know, when it's going, it's a driving force, you know, in our lives. One of my all-time favorite Burmese English translations happened when Sairabha Pandita was giving a talk about this. This is years ago. And he's going on and on and on, you know, maybe talking for five minutes. And then the translator comes in with three words. (laughs) It's like translating that whole long thing. And the three words were, lust cracks the brain. Four words. (laughs) Lust cracks the brain. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I mean, when it's roaring, we very often, that energy can get us in so much trouble because it's so powerful. 
you know, and then we rationalize all, all kinds of behavior. You know, and as we know, sometimes it's when we're feeling strong sexual energy or passion, it's when we feel most alive and most connected to the world, and it's powerful. So we need to really understand it and to learn about it, to learn how to be with it and how to use it in a skillful way. A retreat is a wonderful time to explore and investigate not only the nature of sexual desire, but the nature of all desire. What do we find? Having taken the precept now on retreat to refrain from expressing, from engaging in sexual activity, it's a very clear space for seeing that sexual desire, like all other desires, arise out of conditions, is there and perhaps is very strong for a period of time, and then at a certain point, it disappears. Is there anybody here who's had sexual desire arise and it has not dissipated? <laughs> Ten days of sexual desire. <laughs> I mean, it may have come back many times. But no, it's not, it's not something that needs to be fulfilled in order to be resolved. Because like everything else, it is impermanent. But in the throes of it, if we're not mindful, if we're not really investigating it, it's so strong, it's so compelling, that we think we're faced with just two alternatives. We think we're faced with the alternative either of just suppressing it and squashing it, or expressing it. It's like those are the two choices we think we have. Well, meditative awareness or mindfulness really shows us that there is a middle way. We can open to it, we can feel it, we can be with that energy, and if we're not lost in it, if we're not identified with it, we see it, we feel it, it's there for however long it's there, and it passes. Well, this is a tremendously important insight to have about the nature of desire with regard to our actions in the world. Because we see we do not have to be driven by them. We can be with them, understand them, and see, is this appropriate to act on? Is it not appropriate to act on? opens up a great inner space of freedom with a very powerful force. In meditation, we learn something very interesting about the nature of energy. You know, our whole body, our whole mind-body is an energy system. And as, as we've talked, and you know, get past the concept and get past this feeling of solidity of the body, we begin to experience this mind-body as a very fluid, changing, flowing energy field. And what has been interesting for me in this is to see that it's actually one energy that's happening, that's flowing, and depending on where the attention is focused, we will feel it as one way or another. You know, if we focus the attention on the energy at the heart center, we'll feel a heart kind of energy. If we focus our attention on the sexual centers, we feel it as sexual energy. And so, as we get more attuned to the body as this flowing energy field, we see that it can be expressed in many different ways appropriate to particular situations. Okay, so please remember, lust cracks the brain. (laughs) The three unwholesome actions of the body, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct. 
there are four unwholesome actions of speech. Speech is a very powerful conditioning influence in our lives. There is so much suffering that arises in our lives from lack of attention to speech. You know, Buddha singled, the Buddha singled out right speech as one of the elements, one of the steps on the Eightfold Noble Path to Liberation. So he highlighted this. But do we really take that in and give the same weight to attention to our speech as we do, for example, to our meditation practice, when we think of our spiritual practice? I think not so often. You know, I think it's very often relegated to a sort of second-level, second-tier kind of practice, that the real work is done here. And yeah, we should pay attention to right speech, but that's just when we're not sitting. This is a big mistake. Right speech and the power of speech plays a huge role in our lives. Has huge consequences for our own happiness, for the well-being of others, is a huge contributor to our own suffering and the suffering of others when we're not paying attention. You know, speech conditions our relationships, it conditions our minds, it conditions karmic consequences. It's not that our words don't have results. You know, so we really need to pay attention here. So the first of the unwholesome actions of speech, and it's fairly obvious, is lying. False speech. And it's interesting just to look in our own experience at the range of false speech which we either utter or hear. Now there are many levels. It might be just slight exaggerations or humorous untruths. Or maybe stepping it up a little, maybe we speak falsehoods out of a sense of protecting ourselves from something or trying to protect others. Well, maybe, you know, stepping it up even further, there are lies or untruths told with a deliberate intent to harm, really with malicious intent where the intent is to cause divisiveness and harm. Why do we lie? You know, what's the motivation behind saying that which isn't true? Maybe sometimes it's greed. You know, we want something, we think an untruth will help get us. Or maybe it's a desire for self-aggrandizement in some way. Or maybe fear of rejection, or maybe jealousy. It's said that the Bodhisattva, that is the Buddha before his awakening, in his many lifetimes, once there was the prediction from a previous Buddha that, you know, at that time he was a hermit named Sumedha, since the prediction that Sumedha would one day become the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, it said from that moment, in all of his lifetimes, even though he committed lots of different unwholesome actions, the one unwholesome action he didn't commit in all that time was speaking that which was untrue. It's like he planted the flag of truthfulness in his life that became a reference point. That became that place of commitment, no matter what else, I will not say that which is untrue. Can we practice in that way? Can we make truthfulness the center of our lives and relationship in the area of speech? What I found is that even though 
it seems like it should be the simplest thing in the world. What could be more simple than simply saying what is true? Lying is complicated. You know, kind of we have to think it up and we have to then shore it up, usually with other lies. So what could be simpler than just always speaking the truth? And probably most of us are not grand liars, but I think it's worth paying very careful attention and just seeing, you know, are there little lies for one reason or another? Paying attention to that. Years, years ago, there's, at IMS, there was, you know, off the kitchen, we have these big walk-in freezers and refrigerators. And so one evening, a staff person went into one of the, the walk-ins, and they saw a yogi there. And the yogi's hands was in the box of dates. <laughs> and the staff person was very polite and just said, can I help you? And the yogi kind of got a little flustered and, oh, no, no, I'm looking for the maintenance person. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> and I... <laughs> it's so easy to imagine doing that. <laughs> You know, just that kind of quick, reactive self-protectiveness. It takes a lot of kind of honesty and willingness to really see clearly and attentiveness, you know, to our speech. And can we always come back, you know, to this commitment to what is true? The Buddha took this a step further in terms of refining it. He said that Actually, our speech should be not only what is true, but true and useful. Because if something is true but not useful, that's another kind of wrong speech. So there's a lot of sensitivity here and a lot of nuance. False speech is the first of the unwholesome actions of speech. The second is harsh, angry, aggressive speech. You know, it's impactful. Words have power. You know, we know how we feel if if we're on the receiving end of angry, harsh, aggressive speech. How do we feel? I mean, mostly we'll probably feel hurt. Maybe we'll get very defended. Maybe we'll get aggressive back. It's not actually a very good environment for open communication. And it's not that the intent here is to deny or squash what feelings we may be having. You know, maybe we are upset or maybe we are angry, but can we find the words, can we find the way of communication that's actually skillful, that's not just venting our emotion, right? You might want to find a way of expressing that we're having it in a way that connects rather than divides. So false speech, harsh speech, the next one's a big one. Next category of unwholesome action of speech. And that is kind of gossip and backbiting. You know, just words when we're talking about other people, words that cause disharmony. This results, there's a result to this. These words just don't evaporate in the air. You know, it has a karmic effect. And it it causes, as a karmic result, a loss of friends, a loss of friendship. Now, I find it interesting to investigate what's the enjoyment of it? Because it's very common, and we all love talking about other people. So what, what actually is the enjoyment that we get out of it? It's worth looking at. You know, maybe it's reaffirming in some way a sense of self. You know, it kind of builds up our ego in some way. An ego gratification. I remember one time, this guy who was writing a book on the spiritual scene in America, this is quite a few years ago, 
uh, he came to interview me. And it was a really skillful interview, interviewer. And so we were just talking, and it kind of just slips into the conversation. So asking me, and what do you think about these teachers? You know, and he just listed, you know, some of the well-known teachers in the country. And he just slipped it in so innocuously. And, and I could just feel everything in me wanting to respond. <laughs> you know, because of course I had my various opinions about these different people. But fortunately I was so grateful that somehow mindfulness clicked in and I could see what was happening. And I said, this is not skillful. This is not wholesome. And I just refrained. I, I did not respond to that question. And later when I saw that everything I had said was there in print in the book, I was so appreciative of the fact that there was enough mindfulness there to see this is, this is not wholesome speech. And the Buddha suggested refraining from it. You know, and I could see you know, how much suffering I had saved myself and others. At one point I made the experiment in my practice this was when I first connected with Buddhism when I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And I was, quite, I was just very interested, engaged, and wanting to put things into practice. So I'd read about right speech. I decided to take a period where I did not speak about any third person. I didn't speak to someone about someone else. I did this for about three or four months, you know, quite rigorously. About 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> It was quite amazing. And that itself was very revealing of just how much of our speech is that. And normally we don't even pay attention to it. You know, it's just so much a part of how we're relating to our friends, to our family. So you might make an experiment even for a short period of time just to see, you know, so, so we highlight actually how we are using our speech. And if we are speaking about a third person, to very much make it our practice to look at what is the motivation here. Is it to unite or is it to divide? So this is, this is a powerful practice. This is not second tier. This brings us right into an awareness of our minds, of our motivations, of our actions. The last of the unskillful actions of speech is frivolous talk, useless talk. It always amazes me when I'm just in a social situation, you know, and people just hanging out, friends talking, just how often the impulse will come to interject something into the conversation that is completely useless. <laughs> that doesn't serve anything. It's just. It's just kind of this impulse to throw in my two cents, often not even related to what's being talked about. <laughs> this can have some consequences. At one point I had a friend, this happened before 9-11, this would never have happened after 9-11, but he was going to Bali. He lives in New York, a friend from New York, a trip planned for, for many months. He gets on the plane and he had or injured his arm, so he had some of these plastic balls, you know, just for exercising. He gets on the plane, sits down, the flight attendant comes along and just, you know, in a friendly way, says, Oh, what are those? And just without thinking, he says, Oh, plastique. You know, the, the bomb material. <laughs> well, within, he was just, it was just a frivolous comment. Within about two minutes, the FBI was on the plane, escorted him off, a whole huge thing. That particular airline put him on a list, <laughs> keep this guy off. It took many days to sort this out, and then many more weeks till he could actually get to Bali. So you think he would have learned. But the power of habit in our minds, so... <laughs> He's in Bali, sitting in the airport, 
and just talking informally with friends, you know, at the airport. And just kind of he remembered all this happened. So he says to one of the people in the airport, you know, sitting next to him, hey, do you know you're sitting next to a terrorist? <laughs> Fortunately, I guess none of the officials overheard, but it just struck me as the impulse. It's just the impulse to speak frivolously, uselessly. We can be watchful, you know, it doesn't add anything. It, it devalues our words. Don't underestimate the importance of paying attention to this. Four out of the ten unwholesome actions that the Buddha highlighted, he said these cause harm, these cause suffering. Four out of the ten have to do with speech. This is our practice. This is not something that's secondary. It tremendously affects our lives. So the last three unwholesome actions are unwholesome actions of mind. There are three of the body, killing, stealing, sexual misconduct, four of speech, untruthfulness, harsh speech, gossip, backbiting, and frivolous talk. The first of the unwholesome actions of the mind is the mental quality, the mental state of covetousness. It's the wanting mind. Wanting what others may have. Wanting what we don't have. And we know when this state of covetousness is in the mind, it's that feeling of inner deficiency. There's never enough. It's always wanting more. I have a phrase which, to me, captures the essence of this coveting mind. I call it catalog consciousness. Do you know the experience? You get these catalogs in the mail, and if you make the mistake of opening one, you start turning pages waiting for something to want. We may not have wanted anything in that catalog, but as soon as you open it, oh, maybe on the next page I'll want something. It's like we want to want. Do you know the sense of relief when you finally put the catalog down? It's like, ah, it's out of the grip of that coveting mind. Well, pay attention to the difference between how you feel in something as simple as that. You know, when the mind is caught by the wanting and when the mind is free of the wanting, it feels like we're let out of the grip of something. So pay attention because we can see the unwholesomeness of the one and the freedom of the other. This covetousness also very often leads to other unwholesome states of mind. Maybe states of envy or jealousy or ill will. So I want to read something. This is one of my very favorite little anecdotes. And it was uh, written by the writer Anne Lamott. She was describing how difficult it is to deal with the triumphs of other writers, particularly if one of them happens to be a friend. So this is what she wrote. It can wreak just the tiniest bit of havoc with your self-esteem to find that you are hoping for small bad things to happen to this friend, for, say, her head to blow up. You know, and so it's just out of that covetousness for what this friend may have gotten or received, it just triggers all of these other feelings. The Buddha spoke of contentment and of the opposite of covetousness as being our greatest wealth. And we know, we know what it's like when the mind, when the heart is contented. What we have is enough. 
So the second of the unwholesome actions of mind is ill will or impatience or anger or fear, which are all forms of aversion. Arises when we don't get what we want or we do get what we don't want. You know, there's some unpleasantness that arises in the body, in the mind. We don't like it. We don't want it. Maybe it's difficult people in our lives, or difficult situations in the world. The ill will, the aversion, arises because of a very deep-seated habit pattern we have, which is blaming other people, or blaming conditions, or blaming situations for how we feel. I had an old girlfriend who used to, this is one of the great relationship lines, she used to say to me, stop making me feel aversion. (laughs) (laughs) We do that a lot. You know, it's like if we are feeling averse or ill will or angry, it's always someone else who's making us feel that way. Well, the Buddha laid down a challenge to us, and I just get tremendously inspired by the uncompromising understanding he laid out when he said that 100% of the cause of our suffering are the defilements in our own mind. It's not 80%, it's not 90%, it's not 95%. If we're suffering in the mind, it's our responsibility. You know, and, and just as an example of this, we read this very hugely inspiring stories of, for example, some of the Tibetan monks who were imprisoned in the Chinese and tortured and You know, they come out with these amazing stories of how in the midst of the most intense situation where we'd think it would be the most natural thing in the world to feel hatred, to feel anger, they talk about how their practice enabled them to be in those horrendous situations with a heart of compassion. This is what the Buddha is talking about. This is our challenge. This is a practice. This is not easy to do. But can we take responsibility for our own minds? When we can free ourselves, when we can take responsibility for our own minds, then we can deal with the situation in an appropriate way, without blame. Much more effective resolution is possible. I want to just read from a little bit from one of the suttas, Buddha's discourses. And it ties in back to the right speech, but in a way this is about right listening. And it expresses this this uncompromising view of where responsibility lies. And I've gone back to this a lot in times when I've been really upset with a situation or a person and feeling you know, anger or annoyance or irritation, I go back and read this and it's a tremendous help. He says, bhikkhus, you know, talking to the monks, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good, connected with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness or with a mind of inner hate. He was talking about all the different kinds of speech that may come to us. Here, because you should train yourself thus, our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. 
somebody's coming at you saying that which is untrue, untimely, filled with ill intent, motivated by inner hate, can we train ourselves, our minds will remain unaffected, we shall utter no unskillful words, we shall abide compassionate for their welfare. That is a tremendous challenge. You know, and we may not rise to it many times, but can we hold that as our standard? Now, that's our reference point. That's where we come back to. That's where we practice. It's a very powerful teaching. So the last of the unwholesome actions of mind, there's covetousness, there's ill will. The last is what the Buddha called wrong view. And there are different aspects to this wrong view. The first aspect is not understanding or not considering the law of karma. Namely, the understanding that our actions have consequences. So wrong view is the belief that what we do, how we act in the world, has no consequences. Doesn't bring about results. When this wrong view is present, it's like trying to navigate through the world without any understanding of what brings about happiness, what brings about suffering. And so there are so many missteps and wrong directions because we don't know. When wrong view in this respect is present in the mind, when we have the belief that actions do not bring consequences, do not bring results, we don't stop to consider where our actions are leading. We don't stop to consider what the results will be, what the karmic consequences will be. We don't stop to consider whether we want to go there or not, whether that's the direction we really want. We're just kind of blindly moving ahead, not knowing. So the Buddha called understanding the law of karma the light of the world because it illuminates our lives, it illuminates the world, it illuminates our choices. When we understand that actions have consequences, we understand that it's the motivation behind the actions which determine them, so it inspires us to look, what are our motivations? Are they wholesome? Are they unwholesome? And so this light of the world empowers our lives. We can actually create our destinies Our happiness or unhappiness depends upon ourselves. The other crucial aspect of wrong view is one that is really the root cause of suffering in our lives. And so it's at the heart not only of meditative understanding but of how we're living in the world. And that is the very deeply conditioned habit pattern or view or concept of self. When we don't look deeply into the nature of this mind-body process, we are staying simply on the level of the surface appearance of things. And what happens is that we create a reference point for all experience as if there's someone behind the experience to whom it's all happening. We create a concept of self as being this reference point. I'm the one who's seeing. I'm the one who's hearing. I'm the one who's thinking. We create this reference point of self, which is a concept. It's a mental construct. We name it Joseph, I, me, mine, and then we're living from the reference point of that concept. And then we further strengthen it with the felt sense of self 
every time we identify with an arising experience. So there's a sensation, I'm feeling pain, my thought, my emotion, my anger, I'm sad, I'm happy. Even in the very language, we're continually reinforcing this notion, this construct of I. The Buddha's teaching on selflessness, on anatta, sees this world in a very, in a radically different way. And this is the gem, this is the jewel of the teachings. And right here is where we can liberate ourselves from this prison of self, from this prison of suffering. In the understanding of anatta or selflessness, we see that the concept Joseph, the concept self, the concept I, is simply a designation for a pattern of ever-changing elements and conditions. There's a pattern of thought, emotion, physical sensations, awareness, all of the elements of this mind-body in constant change, but they appear as a pattern. So on the surface level, we look, you know, we look in the mirror and say, yep, that's me. That's the surface recognition. When we look meditatively, we see there's no one there at all. It's just this flow of changing elements. So I'd like to just offer you three images or examples of how you might begin to consider or understand this counterintuitive notion of selflessness. One, of course, I've been using for the last 30 years of teaching. So many of you undoubtedly have heard it. When you go out at night and you look up at the sky and a star-filled night, can you recognize the constellation, the Big Dipper? And that's a pretty easy constellation to pick out, even for those of non-astronomers among you. All right. Okay, so you look up at see the Big Dipper. Okay, this is the final exam of the course now. <laughs> this question, is there really a Big Dipper up there? <laughs> There's no Big Dipper. <clears throat> Big Dipper is a concept. What we're seeing are points of light in a certain pattern. But then the mind overlays that pattern with a concept, with an image, oh, Big Dipper, and a useful one. You know, you can find the North Star through the Big Dipper, and if you're in the middle of the ocean and you need the North Star. So the concepts can be useful, but it is a concept. There's no Big Dipper. Big Dipper is like self. Big Dipper is like I. Big Dipper is like Joseph. It's a concept describing a pattern, but it doesn't actually refer to anything. Those stars don't belong to some inner Big Dipper. <laughs> All the Big Dipper is, is a concept describing the pattern. Self, Joseph, I is a concept describing the pattern of these mind-body elements. Okay, now go out at night, look up at the sky, and see if it's possible not to see the Big Dipper. It's really hard. We've been so conditioned to see in a certain way, it's very hard to see simply the sky as a unified field with different points of light without pulling the Big Dipper out. So it's hard not to see the Big Dipper, you can imagine that it'll take some work not to see self, not to see you know, this concept. Another image. You go to the movies. You know, there's this movie, there's this story on the screen. Really caught up in the story. And you know, it's a love story or it's a horror movie or it's a romance, whatever. But really caught up in it. And then you happen to look up and you see the beam of light. And they're going through the film, being projected on the screen. And you realize nothing at all is happening. There's nobody there falling in love. There's nobody getting killed. There's nobody dying. There's nobody being chased. 
It's just a dance of light and color. Nothing is happening, nothing is going on. When His Holiness, the 16th Karmapa, was dying, this maybe is, I don't know, 20-some years ago, he was, it was in Chicago, his body uh, had cancer and you know, his body was going through a lot. His disciples were all grieving. And at a certain point it said he turned to them and said, don't worry, nothing happens. And I just, I love that story because it's such a union of the relative and ultimate levels. On the relative level, there's the body, it's, you know, disease, it's dying. So on the relative level, on the level of the movie, there's this big thing happening. On the ultimate level, there's no one there to be born or to die. Don't worry, nothing happens. So it's just to settle back and open to this possibility of understanding. This is where our practice is leading. This is the kind of understanding that liberates us from the prison of self. It was out of the Buddhist compassion that he pointed out these ten unwholesome actions. Refrain from the unskillful, do what is wholesome, purify the mind. These are the teachings of the Buddha. It's like going along a beach and seeing a sign, take care, dangerous undertow. Right? It's a warning. It's saying, this is dangerous. Don't swim here. So this is Buddha as lifeguard. You know, <laughs> he's saying, take care. These actions cause suffering. He's laying it all out for us. And it doesn't take much for us to reflect in our lives. We don't just have to believe what he said. We can just look back at all the times we have done these actions and reflect on the suffering that they've caused. So we train ourselves. This is the training. This is the long, mature vision of freedom. It's not, freedom is not about just doing what we want whenever we want. That's often addiction. Freedom is about creating the space in the mind, the understanding in the mind, the wisdom in the mind, where we can see, where we can exercise some discerning wisdom. This action leads to suffering. This action leads to peace, to happiness. And we have the space and the love and the care to make wise choices. And we can undertake all of this with that very ennobling motivation of bodhicitta, that we do all of this, refraining from the unwholesome, performing the wholesome, doing the work of purifying the mind, with the motivation that this is not for ourselves alone, but we undertake this journey with the aspiration that it be for the welfare, for the benefit, for the awakening of all beings. So that's a hugely ennobling aspiration which we can cultivate. I'd just like to close with a few lines from a wonderful poem by Galway Cannell, which is all about us understanding these teachings and manifesting them in our lives. He says, sometimes we need to reteach a thing its loveliness. To teach it in words and in deeds, it is lovely, so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. As we practice refraining from unwholesome actions, doing wholesome ones, purifying the mind, we are reteaching ourselves our loveliness. Sometimes we need to reteach a thing its loveliness, to teach it in words and in deeds it is lovely, so that it flowers from within of self-blessing. So this is our practice. Let's sit for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.